From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. This week, we are talking with two of our Penn State colleagues, Julie Jung, who is a doctoral student in educational policy, and Maitre Gopalan, who is assistant professor of education and public policy. And they are the authors of a new study which looks at the effects of a mandated civic education test for high school students in many states across the country and how that translates to voter turnout. Does requiring this civics exam increase voter turnout? And spoiler alert, it doesn't. But we'll talk with Jillian and Maitreya about that. But before we get to that, I thought it might be helpful to just take a step back and talk about why we even think about civic education in democracy in the first place. As we've talked a number of times, the founders were nervous about popular sovereignty, about giving, you know, uh, so much power to people who were, you know, (laughs) who most people at the time didn't want to give power to, right? And so one of the ways that they saw as being a remedy to the problem was education, right? And so you have uh, almost every founder that I know of talking about how education generally and education in politics and civics specifically was essential, right? And I just found this one little quote from Madison, which I think is representative. Uh, Knowledge will forever govern ignorance and a people who mean to be their own governors must arm themselves with the power which knowledge gives. So I don't think that's a distinctive quote. I don't think, you know, I, I really do think it's kind of representative But, you know, in the United States and in democracies generally, um, civic education is broadly understood as a way to prepare people for the burdens and privileges of sovereignty. Yeah, I would not actually have taken this back to Madison because there was no particular discussion of public schooling among the founders. And of course, they didn't really think of the public in broad popular terms. They thought about politics as being restricted to landowning white people. And they had a very elitist view. And true, they were all highly educated. But I don't really pick up much in what I've read about the founders to say that they saw this as important for the population at large. I I really trace it more to the development of public schooling in the United States, uh, which was really in the 1800s. And public schools were set up to be controlled by their communities, not by the parents, but to be controlled by their Mm -hmm. communities. And that it was seen that one of the responsibilities of public schooling had to be to help to create, train, uh, nurture democratic citizens. And and so I would would trace it more to the public school movement uh, than I would to the founders. Uh, but, you know, we're basically saying the same thing, I guess, which is that we think that there is reason to believe that in the past there was a belief and there continues to be that students needed to learn about their country and about their system of government and about what it means to be a, a part of a democracy. I would just say, you know, civic education in this regard is no different than just about any other 
uh, question about the curriculum in public schools, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, in the libraries, in how do we read? What do we teach? How, what's the right way to teach math? I mean, every question about the curriculum is contentious. I mean, Michael, nobody knows more than you about how it's impacted science curricula. Yes, right? yeah, it's high very high contentious. And, and, you know, I mean, it comes down to fundamental questions about who should decide. Right. What students learn. I think that's a very good segue to the civic education initiative, right? It's not particularly old, like it's what, about 10 years old, right? Mm -hmm. And it was driven by the Foss Institute at Arizona State. Michael, do you want to say any more about that? This civic education test that they have gotten many states to adopt is modeled either exactly or very closely on the American citizenship test. And I have to say, as I read about it, I read some articles about it, I keep coming up with sort of two possible reasons that they wanted to do this, okay? One is a sense, and you see rhetoric around this very much so, that the sense that there's some kind of national embarrassment that when kids, or many Americans, I guess, are given the citizenship tests that citizens have to take, uh, they get much lower scores, and that this is considered a great national embarrassment. I don't fully get this, because it's not like the immigrants that come to the United States are randomly selected somehow. (laughs) So I always have found that comparison absolutely silly. Uh, But when you do read about this, it comes up quite a bit. The other is that there is research that's out there in the education world, that having a more solid knowledge of the nuts and bolts of American government and American history and American institutions, uh, American processes matters, that you have a higher level of engagement for it. I mean, I think it is fair to say, as a matter of fact, they do say, right, that this is understood to be the bare minimum that students should know. This is the model that has been adopted very quickly by a number of states. And they're, you know, these two researchers are looking to say, is it doing what they hope it would do? Right, right. Yeah, so let's go to the interview. We'll hear uh, Jilly and Maitre explain their research and their findings and their methodology in a bit greater detail. Then maybe we can come back in and pick up the question of, if not this, then what? Uh, or, you know, wh- what do, where do we go now with this information? So let's go now to the interview. Jilly Jung and Maitre Gopalan, welcome to Democracy Works. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for having us, Jenna. So I'm excited to talk with you about your new paper, which explores the connection between civic education and voter turnout among young people. And before we dive into the specifics of that work, I just like to talk for a minute about that connection or the perceived connection between civic education and voter turnout. Jilly, it seems like kind of an obvious point on some levels that, of course, if you have more civic education, voter turnout will be higher. But I wonder if you could just talk a bit about where that assumption comes from and what underlies it. Yeah, that's a good question because it's like a kind of untested assumption that we have had for a long time. And I think it comes from like like political scientists view, educators view, and then other citizens view. And 
it's usually suggested as a solution to solve low voter turnout because like civic education is kind of designed to prepare students as engaged citizens. And um, like for a long time, political scientists has concern of low youth voter turnout. And then they of, often mention civic education as a solution to this low voter turnout. And that's the like uh, first thing we usually think of when it comes to like how to fix our low voter turnout, especially among young people. And they like school is the like a great resource where we can start with, you know, like some types of intervention to improve those type of um, civic participation thing. So that's the like um, first thing that people think of. But at the same time, like it's not like certain that civic education actually works well to improve voting participation. And so is the thought here that the more information people have or students have, the more confident they'll be or the more motivated they'll be to go out and vote when they're old enough to do so? I think that's just the traditional approach of like educators and political scientists and a lot of them, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, it's the traditional model for education itself. You just transfer knowledge and somehow you uh, uh, hope that uh, children just take that knowledge and then go and apply it everywhere. And I think that kind of has translated to this setup too, thinking that if we give them civic knowledge, political knowledge and factual knowledge, it'll translate to them using it and to going and being more engaged uh, citizens and uh, in voting. So I think that's kind of the traditional line that uh, people or hypothesis people have about civic education affecting voter turnout. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad that your work is testing that hypothesis, at least in one specific way. And that is based on the something called the Civics Education Initiative. Can you tell us what that is and what it was intended to do? It's a civic state level civics test policy. It requires high school students to take or pass the exam. And the exam itself is about like basic U.S. government, politics, and history. And questions for the test comes from the U.S. naturalization test, which is for immigrants. So like immigrants, if they want to become like a U.S. citizen, they have to take that test. So the policy supporters argue that it's a bare minimum that like U.S. citizens has to have. So that's the format of the test. And like states have really kind of like various forms, like how they implemented it. But like, basically, they use the same set of question and answers for the test. And it is for high school students. And some states require this as a graduation requirement. So they have to take or pass this test to get high school degree. Mm -hmm. And like many states allow students to take multiple times. So it's not a high stake test. And because students also can see all questions and answers before. Yeah. And so if I read correctly, this initiative was launched in 17 or 18 states over the course of a few years. Just as kind of a sidebar, it seems wild to me that that many states implemented a new policy in such a short period of time. Did that seem uh, kind of quick to both of you coming from your background in education policy? Yeah, I was kind of surprised just like within a period of like four to five years, like 
close to 18 states adopted it. But I think it goes back to what Jilly mentioned just a minute ago, that it is was not a high stakes test. Uh, states also had power to implement it differently across these different states. This own state departments of education or the school districts kind of implemented this policy in a very, very ad hoc fashion. Uh, and those are all, uh, I think, the reasons why uh, this policy seemed to be widely adopted. But I think implementation varies dramatically, and that would be key uh, in some way for us to keep an eye out on how this policy um, gets implemented and rolled out. And multiple states are thinking about it, including Pennsylvania, uh, which we might talk about. But uh, yeah, that, that's kind of the uh, surprising thing about um, how this was quickly adopted in many states. Yeah. Let's come back to the implementation. I don't want to bury the lead too much here about your findings from this research. To ask the question simply, did participating in the civic education initiative lead to an increase in voter turnout in the states that had adopted it? No. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) it's too obvious for us. I mean, like, even before us, there were many scholars who argue that this policy wouldn't work. And there are many like educators, scholars arguing that like this learning basic facts about like civics and government wouldn't increase any types of civic engagement among students. But there was like no research, empirical research on that. So that's why we looked at it. And then we used like rigorous methods to see the causal effect of the policy on Boratena. And we did a lot of like um, alternative method. We used a lot of alternative method to make sure our conclusion. And our conclusion is that the civics test policy did not improve young people's voter turnout, at least in a short term. We couldn't see the long-term effect because we only look at the one 2020 presidential election and one midterm election. Post-implementation. So we do look at the 20-year panel uh, and look at how the voting rates had changed in states that had adopted it versus not. And we can talk about the method in detail later. But in terms of the post-adoption outcomes, we only had uh, very limited short-term outcome results. And so, yeah, in the short term, it looks like uh, this approach does not work. So you said you weren't surprised by that. And Jilly, you mentioned that, you know, even before this CEI policy was rolled out, it was kind of questioned. Do you think that is this basically just I don't want to call it a bad policy design, but, uh, you know, is this a problem of the way that this particular policy was structured rather than a comment on the power of civic education as a whole to impact voter turnout. Yes, it's just like specifically about this policy. I still do believe that civic education is super important and it's a great tool. And then it's almost like only thing that we have as an educator to improve students' voter turnout because like so many things come from like family background, but like we can improve things through public education that I still believe civic education, but this policy specifically was not designed well. So, you know, knowing that there was this kind of, there was this difference of opinion or this skepticism going into it. Why did the people behind the civic education initiative think that this might be a useful thing to do? Or what were you able to find about their rationale for wanting to implement it in the first place? 
I think basically their argument was that it's minimum that students should know and it doesn't cost much. It doesn't cost much. It's not a high stakes test. So, and the students take the test multiple times. So people can implement the policy without worrying too much about unintentional consequences. And I think that convinced legislators, like, because like, you know, if it doesn't work, okay. But if it works, it's great. Yeah, there's really no downside. Yes, but um, like some scholars actually concerned of negative impact of it because we have really limited instruction time in school for civic education. And if we implement this policy, it means that students have to learn about this. And it means that it takes up some time of civic education that could be used for other more important civic related activities that might improve civic skills. Like for example, like mock election or discussing about like interesting and important social issues. Um, But rather than doing that, people, students just like learned like really basic history stuff and then memorizing answers and it's not a good use of time. Mm-hmm. And given that we don't have much time for civic education at school, it was a uh, concerning. In the world of limited time and uh, instructional time in schools and opportunity costs of various other policies taking the space, there is always a downside when you adopt a policy like this if it's not designed well in the sense that what else could you have done? What else that might have been effective could have been done? Um, and so I think uh, that's something that these trade-offs we should be thinking about both policymakers, researchers, um, as well as practitioners, uh, because it's always an opportunity cost when you're adopting a policy. What else are you not doing? Can you give us a sense of how states and schools within those states uh, implemented this test? You said it's, you know, kind of an open book sort of thing. There, it's it's very low hanging fruit. Um, but what did that actually? look like in the classroom to the extent that you were able to look at that information? Yeah, that's a good question. This policy implementation varies a lot across states. So some states even doesn't require to pass the exam. Some states like require students to take and pass the exam to graduate high school, but like in other states, like, you know, you can just take and then you don't need to pass the exam and then you can take multiple times, but it varies across like states a lot. And then some states does not even track students' record at the state level. They just let school district or school implement the policy and they just, just provide some guidance. Oh, you can use these questions. You can, you know, follow this instructor like to implement the test and you can't have this you can score with following this and you can record your scores based on this. But then many states allow schools to do like whatever they want. So it, it kind of varies a lot across schools and across school districts. So let's talk a bit about the research and the methodology that you use to match up these kind of different sets of data, right? You know, on the one hand, you have the states that, that implemented CEI, but then you have, you know, the voter turnout data over here. And 
you know, students may go to high school in one state, but go to college in a different state. There's a lot of moving around that happens at this particular point in someone's life. So how did you attempt to reconcile those things or, or how did you go about comparing you know, these different data sources in your work? That's a great question. We mostly relied on current population survey data which is a nationally representative data of the U.S. citizen, and it has self-reported voting participation information. And we used from 1996 cycle to 2020 cycle that has presidential elections. So we compared, um, so like, let's talk about like design itself first to understand why this method works. So let's say, Pennsylvania implemented this policy in 2008. And we compare, we can compare voter turnout in 2016 to 2020. So after the police implementation, does voter turnout has increased? We can look at that. But the problem is that it's possible that 2020 election was just, you know, like really like interesting election that many people go for a vote. So we cannot know that it's because of the policy or is the election specific thing. So that's why we needed other states that did not implement the policy, but probably experienced the same 2020 election event. So that's why we need a treatment group which implement the policy and then we need control group that did not implement the policy and then we can compare whether this growth before and after the policy are different. Um, so that's our basic setup. So we calculate, we captured, like we aggregated and gathered all individual level voter turnout in each state across 1996 to 2020. And we um, used the difference in difference to see whether this change comes from policy, not other factors. And you asked a great question that um, what if people move around? because our data is from like 18 to 22 years old. So they already graduated high school when we captured their like voter voting participation. And our assumption was that, okay, let's conservatively assume that they did not move because the previous research showed that they people don't move a lot and they can move within states, but like across states move is like quite small. So we, based on that assumption, we just linked the high school policy at state level and then 80 to 22 years old voting participation. Can you give us a sense of, of some of the questions that are on the civic test? What, what kinds of things does it ask? So I have two examples. First, the name of the territory the United States purchased in 1803. And the second example is that the name of the longest rivers in the United States. Yeah, so not not necessarily <laughs> things that are connected to voting in any way or the, the things that you mentioned at the very beginning, right? Like how to vote, why voting matters. You know, none of those questions are mm-hmm. on our ballots. And I could see how for a high school student, it might be difficult to make the connection between these seemingly random questions and mm-hmm. what they're expected to do as citizens in our democracy. Yes. And it is important to dis- say that 
um, like specific political knowledge really helps actually. Like there were some previous studies finding find that if you give students really specific information on how to register, how to vote, like, you know, like those type of intervention helped students to go out for a vote. So like specific targeted knowledge intervention helps improving voting participation. However, this just broad general political knowledge that is not related to voting participation does not help. That's, yeah, that's the takeaway. Yeah. Yeah. And so that leads us into, you know, what, what do we do next or what follows from this? Is the civic test still on the books in the, the states that adopted it? And is it still growing? Are there, are, is there, is there still a push to get it into even more states? There are other groups that are really trying to add to what we can do to implement this policy in a more effective way. So maybe changing the kinds of knowledge uh, they get, the kinds of knowledge students get tested in these civic test policies. So we've been talking to uh, organizations like PA Civics, where they think knowledge is just one of the three pillars to improve civic participation, right? But there's skills, but there's also actions. Um, And so maybe they will add on other layers to this policy where students might get a more direct feeling of what civic engagement really means by like say mock elections or participating in other local volunteering activities. Maybe if they add some of these other components to this test, uh, maybe uh, it will be useful in uh, improving their knowledge and changing their actions. Uh, but I think uh, adopting just the policy asses <laughs> is probably not a good idea. I guess I just wondered too about like layering on the culture war aspect of this. I know that wasn't something that came up in your specific paper, but um, just as people who study education policy and who work with future teachers, I could see a scenario in which a school might say, well, given how much controversy there seems to be over anytime we bring up history or civics or, you know, maybe this test is all that we're really able to do or we don't want to go any further because we're afraid it might make some people mad. Education and public education in this country is constantly polarized. Uh, There are wars about everything, not just culture, like there are reading wars. Uh, What's the best way to teach kids how to read? Uh, Are we uh, providing them the right kinds of knowledge? Uh, What kinds of math teaching works? What kind of math knowledge works? And so I think education across the board is just a very politically charged um, environment. And my hope as an educator um, is uh, to to promote research and um, other kinds of ways in which we can look at data, look at uh, policies and effects in as nonpartisan a way as possible. Um, And which is why I think policies uh, like this uh, and data like this should be uh, broadened and people should have access to such data to do more such analysis, to try and ask in a nonpartisan way, does it work? Um, If this works, we would have come out and said it works and it would have been just as, uh, I guess, popular uh, and picked up by uh, some groups. Uh, But I think we should use good data and good research methods to ask in in a nonpartisan way, 
what works and what doesn't. Uh, and it's been a deeply problematic issue in very many education-related topics. And I think uh, we're hoping that um, our work can and encourage more researchers to come and study policies and topics like that in uh, a dispassionate fashion uh, as they can. To bring things to a close here, so we are heading into an election year. What do each of you, you know, how should educators and people who support civic education, which I would lump anyone who listens to a podcast about democracy as a supporter of civic education, what should we all be thinking about or striving to do to make sure that our young voters have the information that they need to be, you know, informed and successful in this coming election and to set them up to be lifelong voters? Um, I think just giving them all, like basic information of how to vote and then how to register vote is super important. It seems very, you know, easy and minor, but I like previous research showed that that actually increased voter turnout and like voting participation in early age impacts their like lifelong voting participation pattern. So I think those small interventions that teachers can inter you know like how to say like implement can have huge effect in the long term. So I would increase teachers and principals at school to have a like little session of like giving really specific targeted information to students, how to vote, how to register. If there's one takeaway from our study, it's not that civic education doesn't work, but civic test policy does not work. And we want to be really, really clear about that distinction. And I think we should rethink how we educate our kids uh, to get them to get excited and engaged in the political process. Either side, I mean, you can decide to vote uh, whichever side you want to go, but you want to be energized about the causes and the issues at stake uh, in the democracy. And so uh, civic educators uh, already know this, many of them. If you talk to social studies teachers, they'll be like, uh, this study is not telling us anything new. We knew about this. Uh, we didn't think that policy is going to work. And so I think Social studies educators already know this, and I, we want to encourage uh, the public, the wider public, to uh, force schools and policymakers and school districts to rethink their civic education uh, curriculum to move away from rote memorization and test-based approaches to uh, engaging their students in the political process, in the debates uh, that matter in our democracy. Previous research mentioned that like, young people are fully like politically motivated enough because like one critic toward young people is that they don't care about politics. That's why they don't vote. But that's not true. Previous study found that they are motivated enough, but they just don't have much experience to transform those motivation, intention to real action. Um, so I think it's important for us as a society to give them a tool and the power and like, you know, kind of like non-cognitive skills to like transform those motivation to real action. And that's what civic education should go for. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you so much, Jenna. Really appreciate you having us. 
Yeah, well, that was an interesting interview and uh, really cool work being done by our colleagues up in the ed school here at Penn State. I wanted to pick up Jenna from something that came up right at the end of the interview. And that was where they talked about how when they restricted this analysis, as I understood it, to basically information that's provided to students about how to vote, like where to go and, uh, you know, where's your polling place, how to manage mail-in voting, all of this kind of thing. How to I mean, register, where do you go? Yeah, I'm not exactly how to register. They're very clear here that if you want, that's what increases voting. Mm-hmm. And I thought this was really quite telling and said a lot about the states that adopted this civic test as well. Because the states that adopted the civic test are not, from my analysis of it, all that particularly interested in increasing voting, because many of the states that adopted this test actually do as much as they can to make voting difficult. And so some of the states that adopted this, for example, don't even allow students to use their IDs to vote, their student IDs to vote in states that have strict voter ID laws. Uh, They make registration very difficult. You could go on and on, uh, but there's a big analysis called the cost of voting and where where a state gets a score for how difficult they make it to vote. And states that adopted this, with a couple of exceptions, tend to be Republican-controlled trifecta states, and they tend to be states that make voting very difficult. And if you want more people to vote, what their analysis shows is that you need to give them information on how to overcome the hurdles that states set up to make voting difficult. So that's not uh, what's happening here at all, because they understand that's the thing that makes voting difficult. So I thought, you know, the real nugget of interesting information was at the end there. And it does make you wonder why states adopted this if their interest is really not in increasing engagement in voting, because I don't believe that it is. I think it's more to do with uh, some notion of citizenship or something where you have a responsibility to know all of these details, every single detail that somebody trying to get citizenship would need to have. My assumption was very different. My assumption was that because we are in an era of such controversy and because um, there is a you know, despite all this controversy about what we teach in terms of civic education, there is a fairly universal notion that we should teach something about civic education. And so here comes this uh, very basic, very bland, very uncontroversial set of criteria that the Joe Sauce Institute has produced and uh, is that right, Joe Sauce? Foss, sorry. Oh, Foss, Joe Sauce. Yeah, is a Foss. Science. Joe Sauce is a professor at Minnesota. Anyway, here comes a solution, right? And so um, everybody can just kind of implement this and all these issues go away. But your argument is that that's not at all what's going on, that, that yeah. this is a decision where we can um, um, present this um curricula around civic education that has, um, that, you know, crosses all the T's and, you know, checks all the boxes, but doesn't move any student any closer to be an actual voting citizen. To me, this is symbolic politics. So these are states that make it as hard as possible, not all of them, but as a, you know, on average, these are states that make it as difficult to vote as possible who are now saying, look how much we want our young people to vote. 
we're requiring them to take this test before they get out of high school. Yeah, I think but it has nothing really to do with voting. And so we shouldn't be surprised, even though these researchers know exactly what will improve voting, which is giving people the information to come up with the hurdles to, to overcome the hurdles that these states are setting up. All right. So here's what I would want to see in a civics education curriculum. I would want to see, I mean, very briefly, I would want to see them talking about controversial issues and then practicing um, argument, right? Practicing how you listen and how you evaluate and how you talk about these things with people who don't disagree with you. Yeah. That don't agree with you. Democratic skills rather than right, right. Sort of, mm-hmm. and, and but I think that's an incredibly ch- far more challenging thing to do. And I also just think in this in the current climate, there's just no way that's going to happen. It's well, going to be agreed to. Yes, I. And, and so that's where we're left. And so if that means the only thing we can do um, that we can that we can plausibly get past and you know, in a red state is to say, here's how, how you register. Here's how you find out where you vote. Here's a website that you can go that's run by the government that'll tell you all this information. Um, if you can't even agree to that, well, then then your agenda is laid bare. I think that's, I think it's just pretty much fair to say. Yeah. Well, another way of thinking about this is that the state level is just the wrong place. And so states do set up these tests and we know that tests affect what's taught in the classroom. So I understand why they, you know, why states want to set up a test because it's going to direct classroom instruction. Whether or not tests determine what students learn or not, I don't know that literature well enough. But it does, it does lead teachers to teach, to teach differently. Uh, but I wonder if, you know, some of the political heat on it could be pulled down a little bit if these kinds of decisions were being made at the local school district level rather than the state. Well, and I so- yeah. And so different school districts could come up with all kinds of different ways of teaching democratic skills that fits their community uh, and that fits what, you know, what, the, what they want, that what they want to do. Uh, my, you know, once you take it up to the state level, like with this, then you're getting right into the middle of partisan politics. And I mean, I understand school district politics have become quite controversial as well, but not everywhere, not on all things. And it's still nothing like a state capital. And you're talking about thousands You're talking about 10,000 yeah it's like 10,000 school districts so yep yeah no i i and there is evidence of that um yeah. uh, you know i mean i uh laboratories of democracy i mean this paper is as you say michael a very solid uh research uh agenda and presents the data really well and the conclusions even as a negative are, are extremely important um, and it's, you know, it's fun to, uh, to talk about it from the context of political science, you know, with a paper that's really written by education. Kudos to uh, Julie and Maitre. All right. Okay. So for uh, Democracy Works, I'm Chris Beam. I'm Michael Burton. Thanks for listening. Democracy Works is a collaboration between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Public Media. Our editors are Michael Klein, Chris Kugler, Mark Stitzer, and Clint Yoder. 
Editorial review by Emily Reddy. Additional production support from Andy Grant and Christine Allen. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Democracy Works is a member of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about our podcast collective devoted to democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you.